Dear Christian, would you please take your Bibles once again and open to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I want to continue the message from the last time that I preached on Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. We're going to center again on those two verses, Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. As I said before, they are, especially verse 1, is one of the most difficult verses in the entirety of the Bible with regard to what God commands of Christians. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You have but to to read that, to read it slowly, to savor it, to let it sink in for a moment, to begin to feel the weight of those two verses. Imitate God. As I said before, I, I struggle to do me every morning. Often my first mistake is when I swing my feet out of bed and put them on the floor. <laughs> and some days it doesn't get any better <laughs> as the day moves forward. Amen? Or, or I could be wrong. Y'all have absolutely pristine, perfect lives and your days go just wonderful and you don't do any sins and I'm just all by myself. But I rather think that's probably not the case. We struggle with our neighbor, we struggle with ourselves, we struggle with our spouses and our kids. Well, last Lord's Day we began to look at verse 1 of chapter 5 and we saw the overriding need of the Christian to see God for who He is. I cannot imitate a God I do not know. And if I don't know God, yet I am imitating what I think of God, Yet I don't know Him. I'm not sure who He is. I don't know His attributes. I I don't know, really, the character of God. What is it then I'm imitating? Well, if that's true of me, dear beloved Christian, I'm not imitating God, am I? I may be imitating something, but if I don't know God, I'm not imitating God. To imitate God is to imitate the God of the Bible, therefore, not a figment of our imagination. In other words, we don't get to think of God in any way we so choose. We must labor, we must be intent about that labor, pointed about that labor, to think of God as He is, as as He presents Himself in the pages of Scripture. And we come to know God in Christ. Therefore, we want to come to God, to know Him, to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so, I want to return to verse 1 briefly before we look at not the what of verse 1, but the how of verse 2 of this straightforward command. I say straightforward because it's pretty blunt in its delivery, isn't it? Paul doesn't tell us, think about imitating God. Don't you wish we could imitate God? No, he says, imitate God. And if we are to be obedient to the imperative to live a life of holiness, if we're to imitate God, God is holy, therefore we we are to be what? Holy. Be holy. If we're to be obedient to that, again, we must have a right view of God. Anything else is just a false view of God. 
And if I imitate a false view of God, I've become an idolater. And so you begin to feel the weight of this command. And we must keep God always in our thoughts as holy, and we must, secondly, we must treat God as holy, which means we treat the things of God as holy. We treat the Word of God as holy. We treat Christ as holy. We treat the time of worship on the Lord's Day. We treat the Lord's Day as holy, don't we? It's a, this is to be, I'm firmly convinced in my mind, biblically, that this is to be a day different from every other day. The Christian is to treat, remember the Sabbath, and to keep it holy. The Christian Sabbath is the Lord's Day. If I'm to treat God as holy, I'm to treat the things of God as holy as well. And by the way, if I'm to treat God as holy and to treat the things of God as holy, that means I'm to treat the hagios, the believer, as holy. And so we begin to form a, a frame of reference for the Christian mind as to how we are to treat one another as holy. So we must always be, have God holy in our thoughts. Acknowledging in our li- a life that is lived in view of the holiness of God, confessing our sins, and not and by the way, not having a flippant attitude about anything having to do with God. When we approach God and the things of God, there ought to be a certain level of fear and trepidation in the heart and mind of the Christian. And we see this over and over and over and over and over and yet over again in Scripture. Every time someone in the Bible, whether Old or New Testament, comes into the presence of God, what is the reaction? Woe is me, I am undone. And so we know this from Isaiah 6, but Isaiah 6 is not a carved out, isolated incident. John, when he sees Christ in all of His glory, in fact, John, when he sees an angel, a reflection of the glory of God, falls on his face as a dead man. There is a passage that we often refer to as Reformed folks. And by the way, it's not just Reformed Baptists, the Presbyterians, URC, anyone Reformed, genuinely Reformed. When we speak of what we refer to as the regulative principle of worship, that, that doctrine that says that God governs His own worship, we come to this classic passage, and I want you to turn there for a moment with me, if you will. It's found in Leviticus chapter 10. You'll all be very familiar with it, I trust. Leviticus chapter 10. And I want to read the first few verses to get the background for the middle of verse 3 that I believe quite possibly was in the mind of Paul when he penned these words, imitate God. Verse 1 of chapter 10 of Leviticus. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. In the background of that, of course, is they have the priestly garments on, on it. They were duly appointed priests of God in the household of Aaron. So far, so good. They were to offer incense on fire pans, so they grabbed their fire pans. It was to be incense on the fire pans. So far, so good, sort of. Because they grabbed the wrong incense. 
they grabbed an incense that he had, had not commanded them to burn in his worship. And they put it on the fire pan and they carried it before God. Verse 2, And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying... Now, please, Christian, listen to these next words. If you don't get anything else out of this message, please listen to what Moses says to Aaron. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. I want to bring to your attention something in the tone of what Moses recounts or repeats to Aaron that God had said. And the tone is this. God is not asking. Notice, notice. in fact, the word imperative or command doesn't quite get it here, does it? God is telling you what will be. Period. It's a declaration. It's not even a command, is it? It's simply God says that by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. End of discussion. Case closed. Reflecting upon the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, Paul writes these words. Fast forward a few thousand years. Written to the world, the audience here is the Christian. The Hebrew Christian. Okay, Hebrews 12, verse 28. Thank you. (laughs) Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. By the way, the kingdom we're receiving which cannot be shaken is the kingdom of God, which makes it God's kingdom. He's giving it to us. Let us show gratitude. Uh, By the way, that's the right response of the Christian, isn't it? To show gratitude. So often we live our daily lives not thanking God for, for things, and we should be. You, that breath you just took was a gift of God. That heartbeat that just beat in your chest. How do I know this? Because the moment God decides is the last heartbeat and the last breath you will ever take, that's the last, last heartbeat and the last breath you will ever take. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. ESV, I believe, does a little better translation, acceptable worship, with reverence and awe. Why? Verse 29, for our God is a what? Consuming fire. And the Christian who's read his Bible scratches his head for a moment and goes, you know what, I remember that verse. Oh yeah, that's what happened in Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire, isn't it? Why do we want to offer acceptable worship to God? To treat God as holy, as we've already read? Because our God is a consuming fire. In other words, our God is not changed. He doesn't just take whatever we decide we're going to throw up to Him. Lord, I, I really would like to do worship my way. No. It's God's worship. It's God's church. It's God's house. It's God's planet. It's God's life. It's God's kingdom. Everything belongs to God. Let's give him the worship he deserves and the worship he commands. Let's treat him as holy. And so a proper knowledge 
of God necessitates walking in holiness before God and treating God as holy. And by the way, that pursuit, please listen here, pursuing that will by extension and by necessity root out sin, won't it? It will. You occupy your mind, your heart, and your hands doing one thing. All of a sudden, they're occupied doing that thing and they don't have time for the other thing, do they? Do I have time to devote to sin if I'm running hard after God? It's human nature. We can only do one thing and be in one place at one time. If I'm running north, by virtue of running north, I cannot run south. seems pretty simple, but sometimes people lose sight of the simplicity of pursuing God. And so it will root out sin and enable a Christian to walk in love. Because not to walk in love is to walk in sin. While we cannot imitate the attributes we looked at last time, those attributes of God that make God who He is, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, God's aseity, those sorts of attributes that we all need to come to understand as best as we are able in a finite human context, They're, however, necessary to worship the God who is. We're to spend time trying to understand those things so that we don't have an idolatrous view of God. What we can do is imitate Christ, the Son of God. And so Paul again writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for, for who? For us. Now, you're going to have to pardon me here for a moment of digression. I think this is one of those great moments in the writings of Paul when he gives us a defense for the doctrine of definite atonement. Christ gave Himself up for us, for His church. Amen? An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so then how, the question we want to ask, based upon all that, is how are we to walk in love and how are we to demonstrate that love? How are we to think of those things? Well, first, the pattern of love set before us in Scripture is the way that Christ loved. That's our pattern, that's our model, if you will, that's what we are to emulate. If you want to know how to fulfill the command to imitate God, look at Jesus. Simple, isn't it? Easy. I see a couple of smiles back there and it's like, no, it's not. It doesn't come naturally to sinners, even sinners saved by grace, does it? And yet God commands it. So let me give you some examples of that pattern of love set before us, which is Christ. First of all, we are to be merciful. Full of mercy as Christ is. What does you say? What does that look like to be merciful? You know a merciful person. You've probably met them. And when you meet a person who's just full of mercy, you notice a, just a, a genuineness and kindness about them. 
you could almost step on their foot and they would just about thank you for doing it. Because the pain reminded them of the pain of Christ. I mean, they think that way. They're they're full of mercy. They're just a genuinely kind and merciful, forgiving person. Second, we're to forgive those who trespass against us. That's important because we see that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? In fact, if the verse, if verse 1 of Romans, Ephesians 5 is one of the most frightening verses in its depth, I would say the second one is found in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus in Matthew 6 says this, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you've never contemplated the depth and the frightening nature of those words, I'm asking God to forgive me to, in the same way and in the same measure as I have forgiven those who have trespassed against me? Well, the normal Christian response is to take the fingers out and go through the catalog. Is there anybody I'm holding something against? Is there anyone in my life whom I have not forgiven? Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. We're to love one another with a persistent, forgiving, forbearing, gracious, selfless love and sacrificial love. As I wrote this and contemplated it, I had this nagging feeling I was leaving something out. And then it occurred to me, we're to do those things like Jesus does with us. That's the standard, isn't it? The forgiveness won for us at the cross is the standard, not our own level of forgiveness or unforgiveness. Fourthly, we're to overlook the faults of others and not to sit in judgment over one another. That has got to be one of the most difficult things to do and to obey as a Christian. To overlook the faults of others. Sometimes we are so good at pointing out things that other Christians say and do wrong. And we fail to look in the mirror and see where the real problem is. All of that taken together means that we are therefore to live a life that is in service to one another. Serving one another. How can I do for those whom God has placed in my church and and around me? How can I serve them? It's a passage that I return to over and over again because I think it speaks to this. And it's found in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. It's given in the imperative, isn't it? It's given as a command. I'm commanded to serve you. You're commanded to serve one another. How can I be of service to you? What can I do for you? How can I pray for you? How how can I love on you? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Are we to love one another? The law commands it. Well, that leads us to our second main point, and that is to love one another and to serve one another is to practice righteousness. 
And the Christian is to be in the lifelong pursuit of righteousness, is he not? He's to hate sin, to put sin to death. And he's to serve and to love one another. In one of the clearest passages on this, you always turn to 1 John because that's considered the love letter, isn't it? 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes this, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. John says, just take a look. You want to know who the children of God are versus who the children of the devil are? He said, it's obvious. Just open your eyes. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Pretty blunt, isn't it? It's a plain, straightforward, blunt statement. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, if you're looking with me in 1 John 3, scroll down from verse 11 to verse 16. I call this the other John 3.16. just happens to be in 1 John. In 1 John 3.16, John writes, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I say, well, the man, that that's... Uh, I don't know about that. That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, this next passage, I want us to read, not that we always don't always, but I want us to read it carefully and slowly because it is how God defines the believers living out that love that He has been commanded to live, live out. John continues in 1 John 3, verse 17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. You look and you see a, a brother in need. He needs something. He, No, he doesn't need a new Maserati. He doesn't need a new 5,000 square foot house. He doesn't need a million bucks. But he needs food, or he needs clothing, or, God forbid, he needs a car, and you have an extra one you're not using. I've seen Christians do that, by the way. Simply give the car to another believer who needed it. I remember the first time I saw that happen. I walked away and thought about that for a week. Because this dear brother in the Lord came to this Christian and said, I notice you don't have a car. Here's the keys and here's the pink slip. I'm not giving much to crying, but I tell you what, I had to turn away because my eyes teared up. You see, that brother counted his fellow Christian in the name and love of Christ more dear than his possessions. Christian, is that your heart toward God. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. Anybody can say it, but indeed in truth. We will know by this, by deed and truth, that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before Him in, in whatever our heart condemns us. So if your heart is condemning you in something, you know, is, is this, am I really guilty of this thing that seems to be bothering my conscience? 
He says, look, has the love of God been poured out in you? Is it demonstrated toward God and toward others? How do we know this? For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Verse 22, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Someone has once said, and I believe it was Augustine that first coined the the quote, much misunderstood through church history. He said this, Love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. And some have taken the quote, trying to make of it that Augustine was saying, if you love God, you can run off and live your life any way you so choose. Ah, not so fast. Because, dear Christian, if you love God, what you please will be what pleases Him. Amen? Then you will do as you please. And that's really what Augustine was getting at. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to hug that man just for saying that. Amen? We keep His commandments. We do the things that are pleasing in His sight. That means not pleasing in my sight, first pleasing in His and then in my sight. Verse 23, this is His commandment. And this is where I'm hoping that if you've fallen asleep thus far, maybe you'll pay attention here and listen. Because this is, this is it. Ready for this? This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. I give these pregnant pauses from time to time because I want something just to sit for a second. I want you to to listen because I'm going to read that verse again. This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as He commanded us. Notice how He puts those two things together. Saving faith, believing in the Son of God and loving one another. He puts them in the same sentence, doesn't He? Because if I don't love my brother, what confidence do I have that I belong to him? Saving faith will produce that love, won't it? The one who keeps his commandments, verse 24, abides in him and and he in him. We abide in Christ and Christ abides in us. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. You want to know the bottom line to all of this? The only way we can love one another, the only way we can love God, the only way we can imitate God, treat Him as holy, serve one another, is by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift from God. Thirdly, we love God with the Christian mind He has given us. He's given us a sound mind, a Christian mind, with which we are to love one another. I talk often about developing a Christian mind, a mind that thinks Christian. And I do that because the Bible does it. I do that because the world presses in on you with with all of its junk. All its stuff. Turn on the TV and you'll see it. Non-stop, constant. Turn on your computer to, to look at something and the first thing you see is the news that is about as discouraging and depressing as it can possibly be these days. And it's a constant barrage, isn't it? Discouragement, depression. Oh, look around you. 
And yet, what is the Christian told to do? To look up. For your redemption's drawing what? Complete opposite, isn't it? We're told to look up to Christ. We're told to have a Christian mind. And I don't pull this out of vapor, out of thin air. If you're following along in your Bible, turn to Matthew 22. I want to read you a passage that for us should be the sine qua non of all passages that teach us to develop a Christian mind. If you want a passage that teaches that, this is the passage. This is it. In fact, it's right out of the mouth of Jesus Himself. That's what I love about this. The Pharisees have have come to Jesus because they have heard that He silenced. He put the Sadducees to silence. Can I translate that for you? He shut them up. And they gathered together. In other words, they, they gathered and they came to him as a crowd and they surrounded him. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. First violation, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. They're already in trouble, aren't they? Watch what happens. I, I, I wish I could see this so I could like mimic what happened here, right? Teacher, which, which is the, what do you think? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Pretty benign question, right? I just kind of like to know. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Now, Something that I think sometimes by the Christian reading this gets overlooked, and so I want to just kind of bring it out of the text. You probably already know this. You're all great students of Scripture. Amen? Listen to what he says here again. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Notice what he doesn't say in verse 38. This is, these are the, the great and first commandments. No. This is the great and first commandment. He says it in the singular. You say, well, that's some theologically deep oversight there, Pastor. Good for you. It is because of one simple reason that everything in that sentence God puts on the same level. I cannot love God with all my heart if I am refusing to love Him with all my mind. That becomes really important for this reason. We live in a day in the Christian church when doctrine is almost unimportant. Theology is, well, that's for those guys that sit in cemetery, I mean seminary. (laughs) Amen? It's for the pointy-headed guys with more books than brains. I just want to love Jesus and sit in church. Throw out the mind. Sit in church. I just love God with all my heart. No, but you won't love Him with all your mind. And if you won't love Him with all your mind, if you refuse to engage the mind in the love of God, then you are breaking the first and greatest commandment. Why do we study doctrine? Why do we study theology? Because God gave it to us 
along with a Christian mind, the mind of Christ, and He expects us to use it. He does. He commands it. Verse 39, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice He says that the second commandment of loving your neighbor is like the first one, which means it shares the weight of the first one. If I refuse to love you, if I will not make an effort consistent over a lifetime of loving the brethren, I might as well be refusing to love God. Amen? If the, listen, if the second commandment is like the first one, if I'm okay with keeping the first one, but I'm not okay with keeping the second one, then I'm not okay with keeping the first one. It's an all or nothing deal, isn't it? On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Thank you, Mr. Pharisee. If you agree with those two, you just gave me the entirety of the law and the prophets. All in one swift package. Fourthly, Time's getting away from me. We imitate God when we imitate Jesus. We've already said that up, but I want to I want to go back to an earlier point. There's a great passage of something that happened while Jesus was with the disciples before his death. It's also in the Gospel of Matthew, if you'll turn back a couple of chapters to 20. And I want to read from the beginning of this event to kind of get the background of, of, of what's going on here, what Jesus says to the disciples. And I want to set it up this way. As, as, we, as I begin to read this, I'm going to ask you a favor. Please don't think, boy, I wouldn't have done what those disciples did here. Instead, can I help us all out? Think in these terms. If we had been walking with Jesus, we would have done this too. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, verse, chapter 20, verse 20, came to Jesus. So I have a hard time with this first verse for this reason. They sent their mother? Really? Come on, guys. Bowing down and making a request of him, and he said to her, What do you wish? By the way, he already knew what she wanted. She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on one on your right hand and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, I, I have this sense that, that even though the mother has come and she's on her knees in front of Jesus making the request, the sons are kind of like ten feet back behind a tree, kind of looking around the corner, right? hiding behind their mother. Jesus looks around the mother. This is what I think happened. Jesus looks around the mother behind the tree because of the answer. Listen to this. Jesus answered, Do you not know what you're asking? You're able to drink the cup I'm about to drink. They said to Him, We are able. The mother's asking, but the sons are given the answer. Yeah, yeah, we, we can do this. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but the sin on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. It's not how we do it. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, your diakonos, 
Does the word sound familiar? Whoever wants to be great among you will be your deacon. He's going to be your busboy. He's going to wait tables. Verse 27, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Watch what he does here. He goes from the lesser, right? To the greater. Well, I can. I think I can see my way clear to being a deacon. Well, can you see your way clear to being a slave? Ouch. I grew up in a southern home. My wife knows this well. And, and in my house as a kid, it was yes sir, no ma'am, yes sir, yes ma'am. You know, my parents both, my dad especially, would tell you to do something one time. He, that man did not repeat himself. And it had better get done. And it had been, better be done right, better be done right then. His word was law. And my mom was right, right up behind him. I thought everybody was raised that way. I just figured that's just the way it was. Your parent uttered it. It was law. Amen? Amen. And yet, look what we read here. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Christian has no room for arguing his way out of obeying his master and being a slave. In fact, the Christian is commanded to be the slave of his brethren. He is to be a deacon to them, loving and serving one another and thinking of one another as more important than themselves. We occupy that place, dear Christian, because that's the place given to us, the place of the servant, the place of the slave. And so out loud, up close and personal, I want you to ask yourself this, no show of hands, are you a slave to your brethren? Are you a servant? I want to go back to another passage. And it's found in uh, Colossians 3, verse 12. Again, it's not talking to people in general, it's talking to us, the church, Christians. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why do you need all that? Because of verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That is the high standard, the high bar of the Christian for the Christian from God. So back to our original question. That's how we're to imitate God, isn't it? Because to imitate God is to look to Christ, to look to His forgiveness, His commands, His love, and His life. That is our standard. And so do you spend time Dear Christian, in the discipline, what I call the disciplines of the Christian life, are you in the Word of God daily? You spend time in, in, in prayer. You pray for one another. Do the names, beloved, of your fellow Christians in your body where God has placed you, do they come to your mind and from your lips in your prayer life consistently? Well, there's much more that I would like to say, but time again is getting away from me. 
I have this struggle in my preaching life of crafting a two-hour sermon and only getting 45 minutes a Sunday. Everybody said? (laughs) Paul closes with this admonition, and so I'll close with this. In verse 12 of Colossians 3, it says, Beyond all these things put on love. Which is the, I love what he calls this, the perfect bond of unity. Because nothing brings division and strife than a failure to love. Amen? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Often we use that passage when we speak of of singing in church to God in the worship service as a part of the regulative principle of worship. But I think the greater and equal meaning is the conduct of a Christian in the house of God. And finally, verse 17, Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Whatever you do, whether you speak, whether you do something, whatever it is, Paul says, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Amen.